0: Welcome to the Institute of South Asian Studies podcast series, where we bring you top-notch analysis on contemporary political, economic, and foreign policy issues in South Asia. 60 years ago, in October 1962, India and China fought their only war. 60 years hence, the border dispute remains unresolved, with India-China confronting multiple crises in the last decade. The rivalry is not only underlined by US-China contestation, but also increasing competition between India and China. To talk about the implications of the 1962 India-China War and its shadow on the contemporary developments in India-China relationship, we have a very special guest, Dr. Jabin Jacob. Dr. Jacob is one of the foremost sinologists in India. He is an associate professor at Shiv University in New Delhi and an adjunct fellow at National Maritime Foundation. He was formerly assistant director of the Institute of Chinese Studies in New Delhi. He is author of multiple books, scholarly articles, and policy briefs on all things china dr jacob welcome to south asia chat
1: thank you yogesh pleasure to be here
0: okay. so starting on the conversation what are the political military and strategic consequences of the 1962 war 60 years later what imprint do you see of the war on india china relations
1: well to start with the political um, i think uh, it's the defeat uh, of india in the war led to a very close system of um, you know government approach to uh, foreign policy and especially to uh, strategic affairs uh, security issues uh, the government became the sole uh, arbiter voice uh, the dominant voice on issues of foreign policy with very little input allowed f- from uh, Civil society from the academic community um, on for matters of foreign policy and security issues, and I think that is really one of the longest lasting uh, impacts we still see the effect of this in our foreign policy analysis uh, and foreign policy in general today militarily, of course, uh, you know um, for the Indian army, uh, this was a big setback i mean this was a very successful army. Uh, uh, if you consider the fact that the Indian Army fought all over uh, the globe in the world in the Second World War, uh, but when it came to its first real important action uh, post independence, uh, it turned up. Um, I mean, it failed. So, um, and since then, I think uh, the Indian Army has certainly not been able to live down this reputation of defeat uh, with the Chinese. It has affected thinking uh, on China to a large extent Um, and of course strategically uh, we have the boundary dispute alive and kicking uh, in India's relationship with China constraining India's other foreign policy options as well so in 60 years I think 60 years uh, uh, later uh, these constraints are still uh, these effects are still visible on Indian foreign policy Indian security policy uh, and, um, you know, clearly with GALWAN in 2020, uh, it shows that uh, we haven't really progressed much in terms of uh, resolving the boundary dispute and uh, in terms of the structural impediments to better India-China relations or to India's rise itself and influence in both in the region as well as globally.
0: All right, thanks. So we kind of discussed a bit on how how the war... Imp- had implications on India but what about China because much of the literature there's a lot of literature on the Indian side there's a constant uh you know narrative not only in terms of research but also policy a lot more people speak about how India sees the war uh, but how does the war figure in the Chinese political and strategic narrative uh, do you observe any consequences of the war and how Beijing pursues its relations with India
1: Well, overall, I would argue that this particular conflict was something of a very short, uh, a very small blip as far as China's international relations of the period uh, uh, were concerned. Uh, China had far more uh, consequential and serious uh, issues uh, that it was dealing with uh, or it has subsequently dealt with in terms of the relationship with the USSR and uh, with the United States. Uh, those were the conflicts, those were the theaters that the Chinese took uh, or saw as much more important for their foreign policy and security interests. I think uh, in '62, what the Chinese, you know, the Chinese uh, narrative was that, uh, you know, we had delivered or we would teach the Indians a lesson. And in terms of how India responded, uh, you know, uh, India laid low, India tried to ignore the problem with China. I think in that sense, uh, the Chinese were certainly effective in sort of pacifying uh, the relationship uh, with India. This was not a relationship that would trouble the Chinese for a very long time. Uh, but it's not entirely the case that the Chinese haven't examined uh, this relationship. You know, In recent years, especially as India's uh, economic uh, and uh, international profile has increased, the Chinese have returned to focusing or paying attention to India. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, the relationship with India has not only at least in the security domain has not only been limited to the boundary issue. The Chinese were involved in uh, fomenting and supporting insurgencies in India's northeast uh, until at least until the late 70s when the Chinese started focusing on their economic development and so on. I think today uh, with China beginning to uh, see itself as a putative uh, successor to the United States at the top of the global hierarchy. Uh, the Chinese have started paying attention to India, but less so for India's, you know, uh, I mean, for India's own sake, but because they see India or they perceive India as some sort of an ally or a partner to the Americans. And therefore, they see India as part of the larger strategic competitions that they have with the United States. Um, and uh, clearly, as uh, I think they see uh, the boundary dispute uh, the fact that the boundary dispute remains active as some sort of a pressure point on the uh, on the Indians. But let's also not forget that the boundary dispute is essentially also about Tibet, that the Chinese are extremely concerned about the fact that the Indians uh, talk of or continue to exercise some degree of uh, cultural uh, and historical uh, sort of or influence on Tibet. And that, that they believe that as long as the Indians do not acknowledge that Tibet was historically a part of China, then uh, China's own hold and control over Tibet remains in question. And that, so this is also something that the Chinese are very, very concerned about.
0: So one thing, you know, which I have noticed in the Chinese discourse, and if I remember back looking at the documents in the Indian archives, you know, there was this first visit uh, by Indian Foreign Minister in February 1979, Atal Bihari Vajpayee. Uh, going to China. And that was the time of the when uh, China had initiated, uh, you know, its Vietnam incursions. Uh, And there was a statement about putting Vietnam into place just as they did India in 1962. So the template of 1962, uh, you know, uh, to put regional adversaries into place is uh, is a major narrative, uh, you know, in in, in China. And we are looking at that again in the weeks uh, leading up to the war anniversary uh, within China, there has been a renewed attention to the 1962 war again as a template in, in a sense, of how China would deal, uh, you know, with regional adversaries, uh, which might not confirm. Uh, the People's Liberation Army has showcased the war in an exhibition uh, at Beijing's military museum, uh, where it has blamed China, India for the conflict. Uh, so this whole idea of using 1962 war and as an example of what China can do, where does that figure? uh in in the larger chinese narrative and and the the celebration of of the war as we saw recently where does the 1962 war fits into that larger uh, strategic narrative within china
1: okay so there are uh, at least two things that are happening here one of course as you pointed out uh, there is this narrative of uh, conveying to smaller powers that they ought to know their place and uh, that since China is a top dog, uh, they should behave accordingly. Uh, now, this is something that uh, the Chinese have uh, constantly, uh, whether diplomatically or not so diplomatically, tried to communicate to other powers in or other countries in Asia. That's one part of it. But there's also modern, current, or uh, contemporary context, which is that uh, in Xi Jinping's China, uh, you know, the focus really is on China preparing itself, getting ready to take over as global number one from the United States. And for this, um, uh, Xi Jinping certainly believes that it's not enough that we simply or the Chinese simply talk about economic dominance or foreign policy influence. This has to be backed by military might as well. And remember, the PLA is the party's army. The PLA does not belong to the PRC, the state, the Chinese state, but it belongs to the party. And it's very important, therefore, to keep the PLA In shall we say top shape, uh, not just uh, to uh, you know to fight against uh, China's supposed enemies, but also to ensure that the party remains to protect the party's interests and the party remains in power in China. Uh, And so, from this point of view, uh, it's very important to create a narrative for the Communist Party. uh, This is a single. uh, I mean, this is a party state. uh, There's a party that dominates all in China. To create this us versus them narrative, to create a very polarized uh, discourse in which uh, Chinese, the ordinary Chinese, as well as the party itself, sees the rest of the world in conflict with the party, with China. And therefore, to showcase or highlight uh, China's conflicts, China's uh, supposed victories in conflicts with other countries is very important. Um, And uh, remember also that India, uh, I mean, China has very little in terms of... uh, actual combat uh, experiences uh, since 1949, 62, uh, to 69 with, with the Soviets and before that, of course, the Korean War um, and the Vietnam conflict. But in the current, in the last 30 odd years, there's been very little and for the, for Xi Jinping, one of the things he's always talked about since coming to power is to uh, talk about the need to actually be engaged in real combat, to understand real combat. And so all of these exhibitions, uh, the narratives in the press, uh, you know, the talking about struggle in party documents, party uh, conferences or meetings, etc. is is of this piece of trying to say that, well, China, uh, the path to global number one is not going to be easy, that China might have to engage in conflict, and and the Chinese and the PLA need to be prepared for this. So that's the objective. Uh, That's the motivation behind all of this. Sure. That's a very interesting perspective
0: because, you know, when we're looking at China and often we look at China as a monolith, we kind of don't really appreciate uh, the internal dynamics as well as the dynamics of the PLA. Uh, so this whole idea about the narrative around Xi Jinping and using these events to kind of bol- bolster his position, but also, you know, to to kind of uh, portray PLA as a 800-pound a gorilla, in a sense, you know, uh, to keep that morale is a very, very interesting argument. Uh, so coming to more contemporary, uh, you know, the contemporary shadow of the war, but also kind of focusing on uh, how it informs kind of the India-China relationship today, particularly on the border, uh, you know, and there have been comparisons between, you know, a uh, number of uh, events which led up to 1962 war, which included a number of Uh, you know, border confrontations between India and China, uh, maybe from 1958 onwards, actually, uh, starting at the Longju incident uh, in uh, 1958, if I'm correct, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, But Galwan, Doklam, Galwan are kind of that precursor. So there is some kind of, you know, comparison between 1962 war and events which happened before and the Doklam and the Galwan crisis. Uh, What what kind of similarities do you see uh, between those two periods, in a sense, or the other differences? Um, And also that, you know, what has been the response of the international community leading up to the 1962 war, but also compared to the contemporary crisis, multiple crises which have happened between India and China, um, and possibly if there is a bigger military confrontation tomorrow. Uh, Can we learn something out of the 1962
1: war? So, um, I mean, you're quite right in saying, I mean, in pointing to the fact that, you know, the Longzhou incident of, uh, you know, 59 uh, was the beginning of, uh, you know, several series of incidents, which led to 62. And I think even in the case of Galwan, one could argue that uh, the indications were very much in place uh, since at least 2013. I mean, there was the first major incursion or a qualitatively different kind of Chinese transgression. Uh, in Depsang in 2013, followed by Chumar in 2014. And then you saw the Chinese incursion into Bhutanese territory in Doklam in 2017. Uh, and so, you know, uh, at least I have been arguing that all of these incidents uh, were qualitatively different. And the Chinese were trying something new at each kind of transgression. And so, uh, you know, conflict was inevitable. Uh, maybe in 62, we did not perceive it as such, but certainly in 2020, 2022, we certainly uh, did not have uh, any excuse to assume that uh, you know something uh, violent wasn't coming uh, you know wasn't around the corner i mean even in 2017 in fact in the middle of the doklam incident we had a very violent clash at pangong so in august of 2017 so uh, you know the troops have been coming into contact much more uh, much more frequently uh, the contact was often physical it was i mean it led to injuries on both sides so, I mean, in many sense, in many ways, uh, 2020, uh, 2020 uh, Galvan was waiting to happen. Uh, so, in that sense, yes, there are some similarities. But also, I think the fact that 2020, Galvan did not escalate into uh, a full-blown conflict, I think also speaks to the different uh, structural realities that we have around us. The international situation certainly, but the capacities of the two armies uh, is one. The fact that both are nuclear armed powers, uh, uh, the fact that the international community now pays greater attention to what both India and China are doing. And therefore, all of this also matters in terms of how conflict develops or how conflict is prosecuted. Um, so um, so there are also differences. I mean, uh, I would not rule out the fact that, uh, you know, there aren't, uh, I mean, there might be possibilities of great, more conflicts uh, going forward. In fact, I have said that uh, this situation of conflict is really the new normal. I mean, not the new normal or the reset that the informal summits between Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and President Xi Jinping of China had uh, were supposed to have created. But this incident in Galwan, the fact that now we have a completely militarized line of actual control, uh, that we might have casualties uh, in uh, conflict or even small scale conflicts or local incidents along the LAC, I mean, this this is really going to be the new normal. Um, now, in terms of international responses, I think, of course, in 1962, what India discovered was that the, you know, non-alignment would only really take it so far. Many of the countries that were part of the non aligned movement, uh, Indonesia and so on were actually, you know, neutral or even took uh, the side of the Chinese. Uh, uh, and uh, one thing of course that has continued is both in 62 as well as um, currently the Americans have come to India's assistance Uh, the Soviets have also or the Soviets slash Russians have also taken a more neutral position I think uh, the reality is that India is now an important player an important power and more or less now we have learned that we need to be able to uh, stand uh, on our own and deal with the Chinese uh, you know on our own. I mean, there's only so much that the international community can come in to do. I mean, there's no question of mediation. China is too big, India is too big to allow third party mediation. Uh, And how they sort of prosecute uh, the conflict or any potential conflict really depends uh, very little, I think, on the international community as much as uh, domestic dynamics within each of these countries and how they perceive each other as behaving.
0: Right, Um, you know, and also, you know, in a sense that uh, what kind of military stalemate can India actually, you know, pose on the border uh, and create those costs, at least perceptually for China. Uh, So that is great. Uh, Moving on, in a sense that when we look at these crises, we always think about them as a watershed moment, you know, so uh, both in academia as well as in policymaking, 1962 is seen as uh, somewhat of a inflection point in india's foreign policy and people have argued that it has become much more realist after that many people argue it became much more realist after 1991 uh, and a lot have argued today that india's approach to china has become much more realist after galwan uh, so to say uh, you know how do you see the overall impact of these crises in a sense uh, on indian foreign policy generally uh, what does India learn, not only from the 1962 war, but also maybe from the Galwan crisis? And is, are these temporary shifts? Uh, is there uh, you know a running spine of Indian foreign policy and strategy which doesn't really change, uh, but also only caters to the contextual demands of the time depending upon these crises? Uh, or are these really inflection points uh, in Indian foreign policy?
1: Uh, So, Yogesh, those are all very important questions. Uh, You know, I think uh, when you say watershed, one of the um, implications is that, uh, you know, we see this very clearly. And frankly, I think it takes some time for us to understand or assess uh, properly whether something is an inflection point or a watershed. And often it's perhaps not one moment, but perhaps a series of moments, perhaps closer in time, of course, that creates a watershed. And, you know, one of the reasons why I'm a little chary of calling it, uh, uh, I mean, so to, sort of being definitive uh, is because, um, I mean, from, to my mind, certainly Kalwan is an inflection point. I mean, but the thing is how long lasting an inflection point is really the question. is it? Whether we can actually call it a fully uh, fully a watershed is really the question. Because if you remember, and I just pointed this out, you know, at the end of the informal summits, I mean, after Doklam, we had the informal summits uh, between the leaders of the two countries, And, you know, the Indian Ministry of External Affairs classified it as, called it a a, a moment of reset in India-China relations. And now clearly it was nothing of the sort because six months after the last, or the second informal summit, we had Galwan. Now, um, and now the Indian government is saying, well, we cannot return to normal until the situation on the LAC is resolved. So uh, you could very well say that this sort of, uh, decision or this attitude uh, also constitutes an inflection point or a reset because the uh, logic uh, since 1988 when Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi visited China uh, was that we could leave the boundary dispute aside uh, to take its own course towards resolution while developing other parts of the relationship. But today uh, after Galwan, uh, the, we are back to uh, square one in a sense we are saying that we cannot leave the boundary dispute B while pursuing normalcy in other parts of the relationship. Which is why, you know, post-Galwan, one of the first steps that the Indian government took was to target China economically. I mean, target Chinese apps, uh, put restrictions on Chinese FDI, uh, target uh, Chinese companies operating in India, and so on. Uh, Now, the problem is uh, there's obviously going to be uh, pushback from the Chinese. The Chinese are already saying... Look, uh, after all these several rounds of uh, military-to-military talks and gradual, painfully slow uh, disengagement from multiple points of friction uh, in eastern Ladakh, the Chinese are beginning to say that, look, uh, the situation is returning to normal. Uh, We are returning to normal border management. uh, And therefore, we need to now start talking about our focusing on other parts of the relationship. Um, Now, the Indian government is resisting clearly uh, because uh, we haven't really gotten back uh, to a status, uh, status quo ante, uh, you know, before Galwan. Uh, so this means that, uh, and now, of course, the flip side, uh, rather, the other part of it is that uh, there is pressure from within India, perhaps from within economic uh, actors saying, well, we need to get back to uh, an economic relationship with the Chinese, uh, because this is obviously worth uh, thousands of crores uh, of rupees, right? this uh, trade between India and China. So now, um, if the government then decides, well, okay, we have achieved a fair degree of uh, return to normalcy on the LAC and we shall now return to uh, business as usual. Again, we can no longer say that this is an inflection point because then again, we are going back to a situation where we are leaving aside the boundary dispute and focusing on other parts of the relationship. And remember, of course, that India has continued to engage with the Chinese in such forums as, uh, for example, the BRICS. Um, uh, and uh, even as it pursues uh, relationships with uh, uh, the Americans, the Japanese, and the Australians uh, through the Quad or through the Malabar exercises. Uh, So, uh, I mean, to my mind, the Indian government strategy or China policy is not very clear. Uh, It's taking a hard line on the LAC, uh, but we do not have enough information on exactly what is going on uh, at the LAC. To my mind, I see that the Chinese are setting the pace on the LAC both in terms of uh, creating the conflict as well as in terms of how the negotiations proceed. Uh, So we still have to wait and watch. Uh, My my sense is that this is not uh, likely to end anytime soon, that India-China relations are irrevocably uh, on the downward slide for the foreseeable future.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, you know, in a sense that, you know, uh, if I can paraphrase it, uh, you know, there can be no inflection points because much of it depends upon what you want, but also what the adversary wants. Uh, So the adversary continues on the side of bellicosity, you will have to respond like that. But also, there can be an accommodation tomorrow, depending upon how it plays out with China. But as you rightly said, at this point in time, it doesn't appear to be so, Uh, you know, uh, but that's much more about, you know, that then there can be no watersheds especially in strategy and foreign policy. Uh, and thanks for that, you know. Uh, uh, but lastly, in a sense that, uh, just, you know, taking the sec from your from your last comment, uh, we know that we are in that territory where India-China relations are worst in decades. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, since the nine, last time, maybe 1960s, uh, i in my understanding of india china relations i would characterize uh it it something of the 60s vintage uh, which we are looking at at this point in time uh, but going forward uh, you know what are the challenges you mentioned some of the challenges which india uh, which which which, uh, which 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 confront india but also china might have sent some challenges about india as well if this adversarial relationship continues so what are india's challenges what are china's challenges Uh, But also, what are possible ways in which this relationship, uh, you know, can get back to normal? And I know that the normal is too far at this point in time. But if we just have to put our thinking hats on, and since we have you here uh, who know so much about India and China, uh, you know, what could be the possible alternatives in a sense?
1: So... Like I said, uh, I mean, my personal assessment is that India-China relations are unlikely to improve anytime soon. But there is a there's a sort of an international uh, context here where, you know, both India and China need to engage with each other, if nothing else, to show that they have uh, some bargaining chips in hand when they deal with third countries. I uh, know in the case of India, that is the United States, Um, And in the case of the Chinese, they need to show that they're not only engaged in conflict with the West, but they also have other countries uh, on their side in this conflict with the West. I mean, they'd rather have multiple countries supporting them. And there are areas where India and China have similar concerns with respect to the West in terms of, um, you know, the nature of international institutions, the nature of the international order and the space they give to countries, uh, developing countries, uh, questions of Climate change, climate uh, respons- cli- responsibility for climate change, uh, climate finance uh, issues such as these, right? Uh, uh, questions of energy security, questions of uh, you know handling and managing uh, regional conflicts and so on, where India and China will willingly have to sort of have some kind of conversation. Take for example on Afghanistan, or say if Pakistan, uh, you know ha- remains an unstable polity, ha- or Myanmar, you know India and China will have to. Sort of run into each other, so there are those issues certainly. Um, but uh, you know, the danger is, frankly, this uh, black and white approach that comes from inside of China, where the Chinese have decided that you know the time for conflict or the time to challenge the United States is here. And from the perspective of a one-party state uh, or a or a party state or a dominant party, a one-party state, as China is. To portray things in black and white um, is easier for the party to remain in power because the Chinese need to show the Indians as somehow being subservient or an appendage to the United States. Because else, the Communist Party will confront questions from the Chinese people saying, Look, if you can't handle the Indians, if you can't, uh, you know, if you take losses in a conflict with uh, the Indians, how is it that you are ready for a conflict with the Americans? How is it that you're going to be ready for? Uh, taking over Taiwan, for example. So, I think the Chinese will be forced to pay attention to India. Now, the problem on the Indian side, the challenge on the Indian side is this lack of uh, staying power. Uh, I just mentioned that the kind of pressures that there might be on the Indian side are domestic pressures. I mean, okay, you want to return to a strong economic relationship with China because if you burn all your bridges with the Chinese, it's not as if the Western countries are going to give you products at a discount. Uh, you know, it just reduces our leverage, our bargaining power, uh, economically speaking, with uh, Western countries. Uh, but there's also domestic imperative. You know, Pakistan is the issue that sells domestically, uh, electorally in India, and uh, China is too far, seen as too complicated or too complex a relation. Uh, 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 you know, an issue for ordinary Indians to uh, deal with, for politicians to be concerned with. So, you know, there would be a tendency to push this ish- equation or relationship to the back burner and it, it it shows because we have very little information uh, actually coming out of the government no white papers uh, no parliamentary standing committee reports on what went wrong uh, you know at galwan i mean who's responsible why was it that we were caught napping uh, and why how that led to galwan and so on so you know unless uh, the government has a, a sense of accountability or if, unless the you know citizens and parliament can hold government accountable uh, you know our challenges in formulating uh, careful, smart China policy is also going to, uh, you know, continue. Uh, there's very little investment in China studies in India. Very little investment in uh, research on China. Very little investment in developing Chinese language skills. Uh, in uh, support for Chinese language skills or Chinese research in academia within institutions of government. I mean, things are changing. Things have uh, picked up sp- uh, pace. But very little synergy between, uh, say, the civilian sector and the government and the military and so on. So as long as these issues continue, there's a problem. And, you know, let me end with another thing, which is, well, there is still a great deal of uh, attention to China today, at least because of Galwan. I mean, a lot of uh, the younger generation now see Galwan as the equivalent of a 1962 uh, uh, sort of moment in coming to understand and paying attention to China. So in that sense, uh, it's a good thing. But my fear is that while everybody is now beginning to pay attention to China, if India really wants to be a leading power, as the foreign minister keeps putting it, if India wants to really be a global power, India also needs to be paying attention to other parts of the world. And that's something that the Chinese, uh, you know, show you in great measure, that they are not only focused on uh, the United States or the West uh, or on India, but they are focused on all of South Asia. They have expertise and language competencies across the globe. And, uh, you know, in India, Pakistan and China suck all the oxygen out of the room as far as international relations or area studies is concerned. And we do not have enough expertise or attention even uh, on our own neighborhood or extended neighborhood like Southeast Asia or, uh, or Central Asia or West Asia. And that's a lacuna that we also need to fill to meet or to, to bridge if you are to deal with China, uh, if you are to set cha- smart China policy.
0: Thank you, Javin. You know, having a rivalry does not mean uh, we are ready for it. And as you rightly underlined, that there's so much needs to be done. And I know that you are involved in many of these things, including training of the Indian military in uh, in in the Chinese language. So I think you know uh, some of those concerns should be taken up. Uh, and and um, on a mission mode, in a sense, uh, there's a lot to catch up on the Indian side. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, for giving us your valuable time. Uh, I have learned so much as always, uh, but I'm also sure that anyone who will be listening and we have uh, listeners all over the world uh, would do as much. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To get updates on our work, visit us at isis.nus.edu.sg uh, You can also follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you so much.